Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Brian Merchant. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. And I, I heard you on a podcast called Technology Won't Save Us. And you have a book. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a bit from your bio. And I'd love to hear more about the one device. So from your bio and your words, I'm a technology journalist who frequently writes about automation, labor, and how tech impacts the environment, among other things. I've also covered the climate crisis, biodiversity loss, and clean energy. I'm the author of the best-selling book on the iPhone, The One Device, and currently working on a second book on, on rebellion against automation. And jumping ahead a bit, if you don't mind, uh, my writing has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, Wired, Atlantic, LA Times, Guardian, Slate, Vice Magazine, Verge, and you had you work at Motherboard, or you for years you worked at Motherboard Advice. So um, you've been writing about a lot of things, and this one book seems on the one device seems to have really caught a lot of people because as you mentioned, odds are that as you read this, an iPhone is within reach. And I confess, I really don't like Apple, but when my last phone, when I, someone gave me their old one, so I do have one here. <laughs> and I yeah. bet a lot of people listening have one wherever they are. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of uh, an inescapable facet of, modern life, the smartphone. I mean, whether or not you like Apple or you like, you know, Google or Samsung or whatever. I mean, it, the story of how this particular device came together is, um, you know, the iPhone uh, is, you know, really similar to the story of how all these other uh, smartphones that are more or less identical in form factor and basic function uh, came together as well. So, uh, you know, and, and if, if, if we're talking about, you know, the impact on the environment and supply chains and labor exploitation, then, then that's true as well. You know, you there's, there are few, uh, benevolent actors on those fronts when it comes to talking about smartphones. And there's a lot of angles to approach this. And I'm I mean, naturally, on this sustainable life, the environmental aspects are, and um, and the labor too is is going to interest me. I think, but also the mindset of I think a lot of people like one perspective. A lot of people say is back in decades ago, you had a fax machine, you had a phone, you had a camera, you had all these things, and now we have this one thing, and it's such we must be saving a lot of energy and polluting a lot less because look how how small it is. And I think people, I think there's something that people consider very innocuous and it is small. It can fit in the palm of my hand, but it's not particularly, would you describe it as innocuous? And No, yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's a small thing. It's so smooth and sort of, it's, you know, and that's, you know, partly by design. I talk about in the book um, a little bit that, you know, it's, you know, maybe, maybe innocuous isn't, is, isn't the word that Apple would, would use, but it's, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly both alluring and inoffensive and it's sort of designed to sort of create all, it's designed to be all smooth surface, all sort of, uh, encompassing. You're not supposed to think about really what's underneath the screen for a number of different reasons, right? They don't, 
you know, they, they want you sort of focused on all of the apps that they have curated through their app store and that they're making a percentage of money on each time you, you download or pay for something. They're, they're wanting you to sort of think about, you know, the, the product, um, and not how it's functioning as a, as a computing device or, you know, what it takes to actually create this thing. You know, it's all about magic. You hear, especially from the Steve Jobs era, when, when the iPhone came about, you hear the, they're, they're talking about it as if it's magic. And, you know, that, that that's, uh, that's also kind of a, that's what they want it to work like. And it's, it's, it's a famous, uh, it's, it's a famous line, you know, in, in science fiction, uh, where, where you have, you know, the, the, any sufficiently advanced technology, uh, is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and that's, that's sort of like what, that's one of the oldest, you know, dictums of science, of science fiction. And it's, it's also kind of true of what Apple's trying to achieve. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that quote, was is used in these two different contexts and apple you know really kind of the less that you're thinking about what's going on the less that you're thinking about the supply chain that is necessary to make this thing um you know the the better the more the more iphones that you can happily buy and it's 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 not innocuous it may be small but it does and this is the basis of the book is it does require you to sort of uh trace these winding supply chains along every single continent. Uh, you know, they're extracting metals uh, and they're having components manufactured. Uh, so I, so the project was to sort of trace the iPhone as we knew it um, from the ground up, kind of break the screen off and then take it component by component and see what it took to um, actually build that thing. Um, and it, the, that sort of journey led me to a lot of surprising places. And I think as a result, I at least sort of permanently think about my iPhone less as this wonderful, magical sort of computing, um, miracle that Steve Jobs might want us to think of and more as this collection of, uh, you know, of human effort, of of labor and extraction, and of you know, it's not too far to say in many cases suffering, um, both on the you know the the front where it's the the purest and most exploitative, like you would think. I mean, there were when I was doing this project, there were literally uh, mines that were using child labor that that to to extract things like tin that were winding up in, in your iPhone. Um, but you know, it's, it's, there's very, there's levels of, of exploitation and, and that it's no less true to say that the designers and developers of the device itself were also made to, made to suffer in less, far less extreme, you know, you're not going to compare the level, but situation, but they were, you know, they're, they were made to work around the clock and they're most of them wound up divorced and, <laughs> It was so the iPhone is this also this device that has this real extractive toll, you know, on those that 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 make that made it and continue to make it. So thinking about what that toll is, you know, in in the context of of a device that we all carry around with us, you know, the same could probably be said of most of the consumer electronics. But there's 
I chose to focus on the iPhone because it what it had so quickly and rapidly uh, sort of insinuated itself into our lives. And it was this central thing. Like you said, it's ubiquitous. Whether or not you like Apple, you have an iPhone, you know, or you have a smartphone uh, built in the mold of the thing that Apple made. So it's an it's an opportunity to kind of, you know, blow the cover off of one of these ubiquitous devices and then try to, you know, map these supply chains and the people necessary to, to make them uh, work, you know. Yeah, to go into the details, if it's, I'd love to start with Minds and your experience at Foxconn, which itself was quite, I mean, just there's what you learned, but how you learned it. And, but before getting those details, can you, how much of your book was about our culture in general and, or maybe, or even just, um, our electronics culture in general, because it, it, things seem pretty disposable. Things seem pretty like what you, what you're saying sounds like it applies to a lot of products and to our culture, how we have changed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that Ar that Arthur C. Clarke quote that I was talking about where you, you know, technology is being made, uh, it, to seem, like like magic i think that that apple was sort of smart in intentionally identifying that um that that trend where you know you had these early computers where people really wanted to sort of break them open and see how they worked and and sort of un understand what was going on with them and that was part of the allure of com of computing um and as that sort of evolved, the chips got smaller that, you know, I mean, it was part of an intentional choice. As I said, Steve Jobs early on before the iPhone, decades before the iPhone, started making these design, design decisions to like really, you know, present computers and sell them as products that, that were sort of sealed off and sort of intended not to be opened up and tampered with or, you know, or hacked or whatever. Um, and that has been sort of the, the, the general trend as sort of, you know, we've in in general become more of a consumptive society where we do just want to be served the product and then, uh, you know, have the shiny thing for however many years. I mean, one of the biggest things that Apple gets docked for is like relentlessly pushing its its upgrade cycle where every two to three years, you know, there's a, you know, they, they really say, hey, here's the new feature that you got to have. And they have you know, they get these charges of planned obsolescence where they're throttling your battery if it's not working as well. And that's part and parcel with this consumer culture that has sort of really, really, really sprung up and been nurtured by by corporate interests. You know, planned obsolescence is not a new thing. That's been uh, that's been a, a product strategy for, for decades and decades, but it has sort of been refined and um, really pushed methodically and and you know some business people would say smartly uh, but it has left us with this cycle as you're saying this, this uh, culturally where you know we are expecting to purchase the new uh, you know faster more capable shinier thing every every couple of years um, and it's as we mentioned earlier, they, each one of these things is uh, a really, really remarkable uh, totem that takes, you know, countless man hours to produce. Um, it, it is it, it, there. Each of one of them is, is a is a feat and each of them extracts an environmental toll. And it might you know, it's not we're not talking 
the toll that your your, your car extracts or um you know it's they're not like coal plants where we need to really sh shut them down immediately but we do need to be thinking a, a lot harder about sort of how we reorient ourselves to um you know to, to, to demand a, a device that is more sustainable more transparent more open less extractive less uh you know reliant on um on on exploited labor uh so yeah i mean i mean a lot of that needs to come from pressuring the companies directly but it is it you know it is it's 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 true that over the decades we have wound up at this this sort of very wasteful culture i'm not breaking any new ground by by saying that but um it's it's maybe come to a head in these vastly complicated and you know vastly wasteful devices can we talk about the extraction and what what goes into them and where does it come from and what are the things that people are most surprised by or most um yeah yeah so i mean i basically had to kind of throw a dart and and pick uh of different components to i mean it it would be truly uh uh gargantuan project to try to map out or visit every uh, you know mine or uh, component manufacturer that is in the is is in the iPhone so i had to kind of pick some that i felt were indicative of you know what uh you know what what really is going on in the iPhone um so i went to uh, bolivia which is where the, the tin is mined um and there are a lot of interest things that ended up being really interesting about 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 the mine um that was supplying tin for iPhones and laptops and I iPads um and one was that it was it nearly 200 years old at that point it's the same mine that had sort of it had originally been used for silver the spanish empire had used it you know to make the silver that was their currency and the source of a lot of their wealth you know and they did it by also exploiting the local um, indigenous populations enslaving them and making them work uh in the mines in totally in on you know like unfathomably gruesome I, I don't have the it's been a little while since that visit and i don't have the statistics in front of me but they they call it the mountain that eats men because so many millions of people have died in this mine over the years um in, in 200 years of of extracting minerals out of the earth for various purposes now it's more now it's you know the silver's long gone so now it's now it's tin. So I, I, I thought it was really interesting that here is this pinnacle device of where uh, at that point, at that point when the iPhone is, you know, really coming to prominence, it's, you know, it represents in a lot of ways, the cutting edge of consumer electronic technology. It's this it really, it's e easy to forget now that it's been around for, you know, 15 years. It really was sort of this revolutionary thing where people were vying to have it and to use it it really sort of upended the rhythm of communication and what you could do when you were you know outside uh your house in terms of 
you know, mapping, getting, getting local map, like these things, we, they really were sort of a hugely disruptive sort of, uh, you know, leaped in, 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 in a lot of ways for, you know, better, better, or worse, but it was the seismic thing. So having this, this really groundbreaking, shiny, cutting edge device of the future being sort of built from the core elements that were, you know, no different in many ways. And I went there, I went to the mine, um, and I could confirm this, that the conditions in that mine, you have, you know, you, you picture the mine carts and with where they're that, that from, from olden times and people just walking in there with pickaxes or, you know, just grabbing minerals out with their bare hands and grabbing. That's, that's it. It's not like it, mining. This, this kind of mining has barely moder- modernized in a lot of ways. And it's still deadly. There, you know, a couple kids had got lost and in the mines trying when they were working in them just the week before I got there, they told me and, and had, and had frozen to death, stayed in the mines. Um, and this is still the building block, you know, for our, our technologies today. So that, that felt important to, to underline. Um, and it was pretty eye opening to go to, to Cerro Rico in, in Bolivia. Um, and, you know, I, from there, I, I, I did a chapter on, on batteries. So I moved, moved to over to Chile to, to the Atacama. Um, the high desert there, which is one of the driest places in the, in the world and one of the most productive lithium mines currently. Bolivia, which is the neighboring country, is, is home to, um, what is thought to be sort of the largest, um, and mostly untapped, uh, lithium deposits. So when you hear about lithium batteries and sort of the, the boom in electric cars and the coming, demand for lithium bolivia gets brought up a lot um because this is one of the places that a lot of the battery manufacturers are eager to uh sink their claws into um but yeah i mean lithium mining is another it's it's less sort of viscerally uh exploitative it it has a lot of environmental issues where it uses a, a ton of water and it can create a lot of pollution um, you're one of the common ways of mining lithium is to create these huge pools, evaporating pools, basically, where you, um, sort of cycle the water out. And basically when the, when the, enough of the water evaporate, you know, you have sort of put it through the cycle of evaporation and you're able to sort of hard harvest the, the lithium. Lithium's a very, um, sort of light metal and it separates and, and it's it's one of the least dense metals which is why it's good for for batteries um if it if not the least dense um so yeah so i you know that i i made various stops like that but it did you don't have it 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 doesn't have to be bolivia or chile it could also be indonesia or uh the democratic republic of congo or any number of places where there are these mines um, that have their, you know, that that are kind of the starting point for the supply chain that eventually culminates in the iPhone. It's hard. Yeah. When, when I look at an iPhone now, I mean, when I look at electronics, I can't help but see these things. And I mean, when you said throw a dart, like you, you picked 
random components. I mean, I guess the battery probably feels like a pretty important one, but I guess there's, yeah. they don't put any waste in there. It's, it's all very densely packed. So probably everything you pick, is it fair to guess that any component would trace some routes to extraction, exploitation like that? I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to say because, well, yeah, I mean, yes, they all touch sort of exploitation at some point because no matter where the components begin, they all wind up inevitably at a Foxconn, at a Foxconn plant. Um, when I was reporting this book, which was a few years ago, it was uh, it, it was Shenzhen, which is sort of, you know, famous as sort of being the the world's consumer electronics factory um in a matter of decades it went from a small fishing village um that china that, that beijing sort of then designated as a special economic zone where certain rules didn't apply and they could sort of you know import the, the famous story of china becoming the economic giant it is today and every sort of these factories poured into 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 shenzhen and it developed this sort of skilled labor pool that could that could mass manufacture complex devices so it became the go-to place um to build things like the iphone um and when 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 i when i went there it was a couple years after the sort of the most famous um you know, incident in, in Foxconn's history. Um, and maybe it's fair to say the only major attention it's gotten for its ongoing labor exploitation issues, um, was when it had an epidemic of, of suicides, um, when workers to protest the abhorrent working conditions, you know, saw no other, uh, recourse, than to take their own lives and they would throw themselves off the dormitories or the cafeteria buildings. And, and, it, and, and, you know, enough, enough of those happened to sort of get the attention of the Western media and the, the company itself. Um, and, and that was back, I think in 2011, again, it's been a minute. So don't, uh, quick Google will, will bear that out. But when I went, when I went reporting, reporting the book, uh, years later, in I think it was, uh, 2016, um, it was the same. That was still, it maybe wasn't happening with the same frequency, but it was absolutely still happening. There had just been one, uh, a month or two ago. Um, so it's, you have these really punishing conditions in the way that you might imagine a, uh, sort of a factory, um, where you're standing at one point on the assembly line and you're doing your job and then you have to do it again and again, but they just so rigidly enforce these rules. Um, you have to, you know, hundreds of devices are coming through your station every day and you have to do them accurately within, you know, a matter of seconds each time. And if you mess up, um, you are liable to be publicly humiliated. The managers would kind of single you out and say, you know, this person is the reason why we had to throw out this device and don't be like this person. And so you have a lot of workers who are coming to work in these relatively high paying jobs from, you know, the remote countryside and they don't have a social uh, safety net there. They don't have a 
you know, a, a, a community other than other, other, you know, migrant workers migrating from other parts of China, usually. And it's just a recipe for disaster. And the, there's this, this psychologically punishing work, really, where it's, you know, it's not the same. It's, it's the fear isn't as much that you'll fall into some heavy machinery and be punished that way. The fear is that you're just going to, you know, lose your mind or mess up or, you know, fall into deep depression. And, you know, the famous, you know, physical architecture that results from that is the, the just the possibly depressing image of nets that they hung from building to building to catch the bodies that were, were falling as people would try to throw themselves out the window. A lot of people think that, well, they're, this is progress. But I, I, it's hard for me not to jump to your next book if that's not too far ahead of automation, because I think a lot of people would say, well, well, we'll put robots in there and that will solve everything. Well, in fact, yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly what they're saying. That's exactly what this specific company is trying to do. Um, you usually see a point, a certain point where labor becomes expensive enough to uh, to a company or or at least to some you know, layer of management in a company where they start ex wanting to try to do exactly that um, and, and replace some of these repetitive motions with, uh, with machinery that can do it, that can automate the task. Um, and, you know, they were, I think they were called Foxbots because Fox, Foxconn is absolutely experimenting with, um, with, with robots that, that, that can do this. And they've, they've built tens of thousands of them. Um, and, they, I think, you know, the, the automation is really interesting. I mean, it's really hard to do a lot of the things that, that human beings do. Uh, it's, it, I think we underestimate, we hear so much about the fear of the rise of the robots and automate, but, you know, there's a reason why Amazon's, you know, fulfillment centers are still mostly populated by people picking those. Uh, items off the shelves and Foxconn's factories are still mostly populated by people, um, you know, doing that same rote repetitive motion over and over. And that's that it's just really hard to, it's, it's hard to do. I'm not saying they won't get there, but this automation is often used as a tool, um, by companies, by executives to sort of say, Hey, like, you know, don't demand higher wages or we'll do this, you know, or we'll automate, you know, there's a famous, uh, a McDonald's executive, uh, you know, when when there was the fight for 15 campaign where fast food workers were were fighting to get a, a wage of 15, 15 dollars an hour. Um, you know, the sort of the, the industry line was, well, if you guys want wages that high, uh, I guess we'll just have to uh, have your job done by robots. Um and it, you, I think there's even like billboards in San Francisco to that effect. And so it's used as this sort of this, 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 this cudgel to sort of beat back, uh, uh labor when it's getting, um, more organized and, and, and stronger. Um, and it's less frequently used that sure, there are things you can automate. Absolutely. Um, but often, especially, uh, when you're still not, you know, that, that, 
a Chinese worker is making a lot less still, even though the middle classes um, has has been growing and wages have definitely been sort of creeping upwards in no small part because there's been, you know, some level of worker organization. It's it's difficult to do over there, but they there has been, you know, movement towards agitating towards towards high wages. There's there there's a, there are some some groups that advocate for that kind of stuff and and it, it, it it's it's really hard. But you still but you have seen wages go up and then you see sort of these fox bots or Foxconn trying to do more more automation. Um I'm I'm a little skeptical that we'll really see widespread uh automation that can do what the uh, the the iPhone assembly line worker can do in most cases for a while yet, um, but it's definitely it's it's definitely a factor and it's definitely um, not not out of the question. Um, it would just have to be it would have to make economic sense or to to a certain level of management or to an executive that really wanted to do it or to to prove a point or. Or, or whatever, um, because in a lot of fronts from self-driving cars to the, you know, factory automation after getting to a certain point, um, you know, there's, there is a limit even still to what, what machines can do profitably, right? Like you can buy like those expense, you can buy those Kiva robots that, that, that Amazon bought that startup that kind of ferries things around, but that's a relatively non-complex, um, you know, a array of move. They they're moving a cart of goods from one point to another within the factory floor, and workers have to kind of get away from you know stay out of their way. Uh, but it's not you know even picking an item off of a shelf and then putting it in the right place has proved challenging for Amazon. Um, so it's just like a really really interesting space um, where you see a lot of potential for, for conflict because I think the bottom line is that even if they're not replacing the job one-to-one, they bring in the automation to try to sort of, you know, in the interest of depressing wages or sort of, uh, you know, removing a, a workforce's bargaining power. Um, they, that's, that is still the intent, but I think it's important to know that, you know, whenever a big company or a tech company is announcing a big, you know, automation initiative to, to be skeptical. I mean, both Uber and Lyft promised self-driving cars uh, within something like 10 years. I think we were supposed to have them already. Nowhere near close, nowhere near close, but it got a lot of investors on board who who would otherwise have said, well, you really have a problem here paying all these drivers that they're going to want more money you know, then if you get into enough markets and, you know, once they're going to, you know, they're your skilled drivers are going to ask for, ask for more money. And they say, oh, no, 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 well, we're going to, we're going to have, uh, you know, self-driving cars pretty soon. And it's a way to sort of sidestep these very real and very pressing sort of issues that a lot of companies, especially tech companies would rather not deal with. I think that there's also these systemic effects that people Economists always describe them as like side effects, like rebound effects or Jevons paradoxes, where the classic example I think of is when when um, James Watt made his steam engine, it was so much more efficient than ones before. And people thought, well, that'll decrease coal use. But coal use went up, not down, 
because more people use more steam engines for more reasons because it was cheaper. And in this case, I think people think, I mean, I expect that more technology generally increases jobs, not decreases jobs. I mean, it depends on how it's used, but if people think that putting robots in is going, see technology augments the values of the people using it. Like a technology, I don't think of as having a value of its own. And the big example, and this may sound too blunt for many people, but when Eli Whitney came up with his cotton gin, this is an example where the exact same technology can have different effects depending on who uses it. Because the people, it, it allowed more production for the same amount of labor. And I think people thought, well, great, this will decrease the need for slave labor. But he did. He thought that. Yeah, he thought that was his selling. He was like, yeah, this will be great. This will, you know. Right, we could. He thought it could end slavery. Yeah, and and the people who bought it, the people who used it, they didn't value less labor; they valued more profit. So they used it to get more profit. And I think historians generally agree that the the cotton gin, Eli Whitney's cotton gin, ended up being one of the major contributors to the Civil War, not an ender of slavery. And it seems to me that if the people who are creating the the robots if they if their interest was to decrease labor the need for human to do crappy work that would be one thing but i don't think that that's a value of theirs i think that they're they're, they're already fine with it so if, I, I suspect in ways that people can't predict except afterward it'll be obvious that it will increase the trends that we see now oh yeah yeah so that and this is actually what my next book is 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 all about it's it's uh so my next book i i touch on i touch touch on eli whitney and and his and his cotton gin i was Um, wondering how you knew that (laughs) yeah it's so it's in a because it's at the same so my next book is called uh blood in the machine and it's the origins of the rebellion against big tech and that the origins of that rebellion are sort of bound up in uh in how technology sort of gets deployed or unleashed on a society. Um, it's about that social relation um, in, 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 in between the person who's, you know, using that technology that you're talking about. And if you're, if you're in a position where you can, you know, use technology to become more productive at somebody else's expense, um, then your chances are, and not always. I mean, and part of the reason that my so my book is about the, the the very beginning of the industrial revolution when this started happening for the first time. When were there were all of these questions, and they were it was kind of it was wide open. I mean, it, it was uh, uh, widely unknown. You know what sort of the long term effects of um, you know automating technology would would be. Most of it is coming in the form of 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 technologies that are sort of automating a task uh in with regards to textile production uh that's how it started first it all starts with textile production um which again Eli Whitney's was a, a key part of that too um so you have all of these devices like the spinning jenny or the water frame the power loom that can suddenly sort of do a job you know that or as efficiently as say six six people it's different in each case but um and you know these were 
introduced into into communities into societies that had been um sort of you know had it it's not that the technology is is brand new and that's the important thing to note it's not sometimes it's sometimes it's new sometimes it is what we would call a breakthrough other times it's just being put to a different end so for for centuries even a lot of sort of a of these local economies in the middle of England would be organized around a a you know a, a just a loom you know where somebody's weaving so the a, a wool weaver would would weave the loom and there's they're using technology already but when a key you know piece of it become changes or can be used in a different way um and i think the most famous case of this when it with regards to to the the luddites who who are sort of the centerpiece of the book and who are the ones who organize basically a rebellion against automating technology but again the myth is that they hate the technology the reality is that they're rebelling against this new sort of ownership class this new um the this these new entrepreneurs really who are using that technology to sort of degrade wages to um make themselves rich at other people's expense um and and it was quite clear at the time that that's what was happening somebody was using this piece of technology either to make a piece of clothing more um efficiently or as an excuse to sort of get around some regulations and so they you know and they were contesting the social relation of that technology where it's you have basically uh you know startup founders saying this is the way it's going to be done um and people were you know had limited recourse as to say like well this you know this disrupts my community in the way that we've done things for for 200 years um i'm not get, we're not i'm not getting a say into how it's deployed or who profits from it uh i don't it's there's there's no recourse for me and my my colleagues and my friends so um they it would became a flashpoint and they you know wound up rising up to smash those machines um and it's bound up you know in it's inextricable really from what was happening on the other side of the of the atlantic where you're talking about Eli Whitney where suddenly they have the machines on that side that they can that they can take cotton and 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 spin it into yarn much faster now so there's a demand is skyrocketing so they you know they they the, the production of the raw materials wouldn't have been able to keep up were it not for you know Eli Whitney sort of introducing his automating technology into the existing social relations which was there was slavery was already a rampant institution and it was in fact as you said sort of in many ways it was it was kind of at that point declining um before the at the at the end of the 1700s it was there was you know the abolition movement had gained steam it wasn't as uh as productive it was th as it as as it had been um and it was seeming it looked like it could have been eradicated even uh by by legislation by popular um because the because of you know all of the forces working against it the organizing around it but then along came the cotton gin and boom now 
you have this incredible use case that the plantation owners can can use to say like oh well we now we need it because if we're going to satisfy all this demand we we need somebody we need we need way more people in the fields picking the cotton um what the cot what the cotton gin did if if you're if your listeners aren't familiar is it was this tool for automatically um basically picking out all the thorny unusable bits from the cotton from the cotton once it was they would they would pick you know the raw raw cotton and then they would have to they would have to clean it basically and and, and pick out all all the things that would get in the way of manufacturing a, a garment from it so the 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 cotton gin had these teeth that that you that would sort of automatically catch all that stuff so that part would go much faster preparing you know cotton to be a, a viable material to make into yarn was suddenly uh, much easier so you had to get a lot more of it you had to have more people in the fields you know getting more of it and so that led to it after that the institution of slavery was was exploded it was bigger than it ever had been thanks to the cotton gin um so and it, you know it's tied directly to what was because then they would take the raw cotton ship it over to manchester where these power looms that had sort of disrupted a way of life for all of the cloth workers on on that side of the atlantic um and then they would sort of autom- they would wind that into in, in, in into yarn that could be made into they'd spin it it was it was called spinning um and they would spin it into yarn uh, at a much faster rate so yeah you have basically if you <laughs> it's not you're right it's not the technology uh and it's not even about values it it's about what the current social relation is that technology is getting in you know injected into um you know you had a lot of sort of uh, shop owners who are like, Oh, I don't know about getting these machines for my shop. You know, I employ a lot of great, you know, um, artisans who have been, who do who apply this trade by hand, but then they look down the street and their competitors are doing it. And they're like, well, if I, if, if I don't do it too, then it's going to put all these guys out of work. So, um, you have this sort of like this system that's sort of self-reinforcing. And if you inject a technology that can, you know, save labor or break down or or, or disrupt a community process, then it becomes all that much more potent. And now I feel like the, the, the prevailing opinion, I think on these things is that if we don't, it's, if we don't keep making things more efficient, then the economy won't grow. If the economy doesn't grow, we lose the tax base to support the infrastructure and the hospitals. They'll close, mothers die in childbirth, 30 becomes old age. We're back in the stone age again. And do you ever, by chance, did you ever watch the videos of Milton Friedman with his, um, what's it called, Free to Choose? Uh Uh-uh. Oh yeah, they're on they're on YouTube, and so Milton Friedman, for people who don't know, is he's, he's this very libertarian um, economist, and he talks about how sure. in England, yeah, he talked about the power looms and so forth. He shows one scene of of England with the power looms, and they were the productivity went up, and he shows Japan how they have weaving there, and they have computer guided, so they can make what looks like very handcrafted stuff. 
but it's made by, it's not made by hand. So they can churn out tons and tons of it and they can make a lot. And he's pointing out how great this is for society. And then he shows India, which at the time was protectionist and they're still making things by hand. And they're like, they can't make nearly as much here. And on the one hand, you think, well, more is better, except that our landfills are filled with this stuff. I mean, clothing, for one thing, is hugely, I mean, dead white men's clothing is like this video that I, or, or the true cost, both available online free and iPhones too. The, I mean, the amount of, the pictures of what's that place in Ghana called? Agudashi or something, I forget. Yeah. Where right. a lot of electronics waste goes. Yep. If this stuff is so valuable, why are our landfills filled with it? Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. Because yeah, it does. It feeds the uh, you know the, the the bottom line. That's it's as simple as that. They just have to like Apple is the most you know profitable, typically most profitable. I mean, it changes a little bit. It's not always number one, so but it, it usually is these days because it does it it so it, these iPhones have such a high profit margin, um, and then the services that you buy through the app store have such a high profit margin and you have it has to convince you to continue to buy them um and that's you know and i think that that ethos too and you can identify it stemming from the same place where a lot of the original luddites they one of their big complaints was that these the machines that were automating this work uh were making they were, yeah, making it cheaper, but all, even then it was a worse quality and it was shoddy. I mean, they didn't like it because it, it started once there was like, it's like, oh, it's coming from a province or a town where they're using the machines, then manufacture, then, then the buyers would, would, would reduce what they would be willing to pay for it because it would, quality was shoddy. And, and then even the, you know, the hand artisans who are, who are using just a, a loom by themselves and were skilled workers and making higher quality garments, they couldn't get the higher prices because it had been driven down by um, their automated counterparts. But even there is that kernel there. They're, you're using technology to produce more and worse stuff where previously, you know, you would wear... You know, I'm not saying you go back to that day where you want to wear, you know, you would have your one wool sweater and that what you wore that all the time and it probably didn't smell so good. But, you know, that ethos, we could probably use a little more of that ethos where you're, you know, patching it up and you're really sort of cherishing that instead of buying a million of them. Um, and that, that harkens back to this sort of attitudes towards production, towards mechanized production early on. I'll also say you mentioned India, and it's also worth noting that um, one of the earliest actions that Gandhi was involved in was in, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Milton Friedman, and this might even have been why he was talking about that, was was because it you know india was a big producer of uh you know it was a huge um textile economy as well but when it was the when it was the british empire was there they were basically sort of they wanted those the those those raw materials too they wanted to they they would basically get the <laughs> they, would, they would basically get they, they would basically 
export and they would import like the raw materials to, to, to Britain, spin it for cheap with the machines and then flood the market back in India because India was a big um, consumer of, of their goods or they tried to make they, they you know, the, they saw it as a big market to sell to, too. And so same kind of thing. The local weavers who would make more who would, would, would make traditional garments and more expensive uh, handmade or artisanal. Uh, they couldn't. They couldn't. Co- they couldn't compete. So everybody started buying the British imports. Um, but it also had the effect of, you know, make throwing out a, a, a bunch of, of 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 their of their artisans out of work, um, and it made sort of them reliant on on these these imports. So Gandhi, you know, protest started of where he would he started wearing the 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 traditional garb that was you know, made on a loom locally as sort of as sort of a point, like if we can reclaim power by reclaiming, you know, our 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 industry and our our jobs, our work, our traditional modes of work, um, you always see them with that. I forget what it's called. The the chokra, I think it was the 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 Indian. uh, Yeah, I don't know what it's called, but I, I mean, we all know Gandhi in the in it. With that, with that image, yeah, that walking up to meet with the king, right? Which is, yeah, yeah, he's the quip was that well, the king has on plenty for for the both <laughs> of us or something. Which, yeah, it is. I mean, again, you know, I think it's it's not to like advocate for maintaining that specific mode of production forever, but identifying the important parts of. You know of 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 where you can have control over over part of that of, of technological production. Um, it's it's really important and it raises a bunch of questions uh, that are still prominent today. I have my phrase that I've come up with now that I've cooking from scratch a lot more, a lot more, almost exclusively. And when I go to restaurants, increasingly restaurants, when I see the deliveries, it's like they're getting more and more packaged stuff. So it's it's a similar process there. And so my way of putting it is home cooked tastes better, even when it tastes worse. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the, the, yeah, there's a, there's a, a humanity that's, that's being squashed out and people aren't realizing that it doesn't have to be that way. I think people think that the alternative is the stone age or some Mad Max dystopia. Right. And that's, but, that has been cultivated. That has been cultivated. You know, you're, in my book, I talk about how that was very intentional, that, you know, that was from the beginning, that was the knock against the Luddites. Like, oh, these delusional people, they don't know it. They're, they just want to smash progress. Like, that was their counter argument when it was clearly not. The Luddites were extremely popular in their day. They were like Robin Hood. People cheered them in the streets. They would watch as they smashed the machines and, and threw them in the middle of the street. They were reclaiming power over the way that their community would operate and who had to say uh in how that community operated um from you know somebody who happened to have enough money to start to, to buy enough machinery to try to say otherwise uh so they had to they had to tap into this sort of mythology that um that it's somehow against progress to to, to stage this kind of protest against technology but again it's, it was it was against the way that you know technology was distributed not against the technology itself but that distinction 
gets lost when you lose the war and you don't get to write the history books. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Every economist, everyone who pushes forward on progress, the one of the starting points is always we are helping the poor people and poor nations the most. It's always this rhetorical trick. They always start with that. I think they realize, okay, we got to disarm them by saying that it's actually helping what we're causing. But it's like, if you read Bill Gates or you read anything coming out of Silicon Valley or Friedman, it's always, we're going to help the poor. A rising tide lifts all boats. And it's, it, I, I think they probably believe it. And some of them. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think somebody like Bill Gates has, you know, he's, had to have long ago sort of believe, you know, that, that because he kind of slots everything into the ideology, whether he's making a, you know, a software suite for, you know, for, for windows or whether he's trying to, um, you know, eliminate malaria, malaria, he does take, you know, it's kind of a, tangent to go down but there's a lot of interesting sort of reporting done about his um his nonprofits and how they sort of addressed you know the the covid crisis and, and the vaccine distribution which they were reluctant to sort of you know make open they they wanted to keep it keep it uh, patented and, and and you know there's competing strands of thought of course but um yeah it's, yeah he you know he has to he they have you have to convince yourself at some point that what you're doing is is not just making you a lot of money, but is also good, or or at least not harmful. Otherwise, you just are a sociopath, and maybe you are anyways. But yeah, I, I think you know, I think Bill Gates is probably thinks what he's doing is is good. But that's almost sort of irrelevant when you have that much power. It's it's you know when you have that much wealth wealth and power, it, you know, doesn't. And if you think you're doing a good thing, um, because you're sort of perpetuating these monopolies that are, uh, having, giving rise to a host of problems of their own. So I want to wrap up by, I mean, there's so many open threads we could follow and. Yeah, we kind um, of went all over the place, which is yeah. fun. And I, well, here, I have to say one thing is that I bought, when I was in high school, I bought an Apple IIe. So this is the mid eighties. And I believe that that's the last penny that I spent on Apple. I mean, I do have my podcast is on iTunes or whatever the Apple hosting stuff is and how this is iPhone, but I haven't, I don't think I've downloaded, I've d- downloaded a paid app. And I don't, I don't think I've spent a penny on Microsoft either. No, I have bought computers that had it installed, but I quickly, I wiped that on. We used Linux. So None of this is necessary, right. <laughs> um, or at least I can not fund it. But I wanted to come back to um, maybe we could wrap up with you talked about the facts of what you saw when you were, say, at Foxconn or in Bolivia. What about the emotional feeling of in the moment of when you're yeah. there, when you're yeah. reporting on it, when you and how does it feel buying or using iPhones or participating in the, in the system that if you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is really hard to sort of separate yourself 
from, I mean, that's, that's what we talked about a little bit earlier. Apple did a really good job of insinuating itself so deeply into sort of the fabric of modern life or creating parts of that fabric for itself to itself, insinuate itself into. But yeah, it was, it, of course it was emotional too. I mean, I, I feel like anytime you come face to face with a, a degree of, of, of suffering that you also may feel guilty about having been able to ignore for so long um, and no longer being able to is a pretty unique and you know, challenging sensation. So there's a lot of moments in the reporting of that of that book when it, going to Chen Jen and, and, and talking to the workers was one of them just sort of realizing the depths of the emotional and psychic toll that 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 kind of work had um going to bolivia and seeing you know you know intellectually that working in mines is dangerous and that you know child labor is awful but to see the conditions to like to see what that looks like to try to we went into the mines and I had a fixer who was a friend of mine who spoke uh, who, sp who spoke Spanish and was translating and help, help, helping out. And he just couldn't. We, what well, I don't even know how long we were in there. We were not in there for like twenty minutes. People spent all day in there. Um, it was too claustrophobic and too horrifying for him. So we we came out. Um, so see, yeah, experiencing those conditions, and then doing your best to integrate those experiences into how you perceive of uh your you know your choices and and what i guess products you use um is it, it, yeah of course it, it's pretty indelible it leaves a mark and it has i was never uh i gotta upgrade every year kind of guy i was never just so hell-bent on getting the latest greatest thing it just wasn't my disposition before but now I do think a lot harder about what we might do to try to both, you know, make our technologies more durable and how we can better pressure these enormously powerful, these world historical, <laughs> you know, old corporations that, I mean, just trillion dollar company. I mean, it's absolutely insane the amount of power um and influence these companies wield um how we might address that and you know some people think that you know, go, uh, going the anti-monopoly route is the way and you know but i you, you know thinking you, you, I, I yeah it has it has changed the way that i, that I look at, at at technology and specifically the technology industry forever and it's hard to know that we're continually capable of just kind of sweeping that under the rug. I mean, I think things are better now. There's more consciousness around uh, labor and tech labor and, you know, supply chains than, than there was in the halcyon days of web 2.0 and Apple's sort of iPod and iPhone era, but it's still, it's still not enough. We're still not thinking critically enough about, 
the systems that give rise to technologies and how they, uh, you know, how we use them and, and who those technologies really affect the most. So there's a road still left to travel for sure. Well, it sounds like your next book will follow up with giving people a lot to think about in more depth. And certainly on this podcast, I promote buying less stuff and using stuff a lot longer and enjoying the lack of those things more because it ends up in my experience, spending more time with people, people I care about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. F learn how to fix your stuff. I've been doing some work with a company called I fix it. They're in the one device too. I started my book with going to I fix it. They're a company in San Luis Obispo. Um, and they, sell re repair tools and repair kits and publish guides about how to fix your stuff because they think that uh, it's uh, that every device should be repairable and that we should have a more direct relationship with the stuff we're using and, and be able to sustain it longer ourselves if we want to. And he told me, uh, the, the CEO of iFixit told me that when somebody comes to them and says, I'm thinking of, I'm about replacing my iPhone, um, it's just kind of not working so good. If you just replace the battery, nine out of 10 times, that that will give it the performance boost enough to make it, uh, you know, give it another couple of years of life. And that, that'll kind of solve a lot of the, the issues. Um, but, you know, we just, that's just not part of the conversation. It's not about building technologies or technological systems that last or durable or equitable. It's more about, you know, consumerism. So, However, we can tilt that in the opposite direction um, is a is a worthy, worthy, uh, worthy uh, pursuit, uh, as you were just saying. So I think those are all good things to be doing. Man, so many open threads, and I wish we could close any of them or all of them. But I think we have to wrap up. Is there anything I didn't think to ask, or anything you want to say directly to the listeners worth mentioning that didn't come up? Um. No, I think we got a nice sampler platter of all we covered. I think we talked about automation and uh, technological exploitation. We talked about supply chains and how the iPhone is made. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, I, you know, we can end with that. Uh, I think I separated the, the quote with the person who said it, but Arthur C. Clarke has, has this great quote. I'll say it one more time, and that's that, you know, any sufficiently advanced technology um, is made to made to feel like magic and it and that's not true it's it's that is also a product of these companies around us it's not magic it's the product of countless human beings all working very hard to uh you know to, to create to create this um thing that rides around in our pockets for you know any, a number of other things so oh, just you know just remember that it it, it is our Technologies begins with people, and it should also uh, serve people uh, first and foremost. So I guess I'll end with that. Well, Brian Merchant, actually, I should say, so what brought me to you is your book, The One Device. I forget if you said the title of the upcoming book. It's called Blood in the Machine, uh, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. Do you know when it's, uh, does it have a publication date? Yeah, it's not out till May uh, next year. Oh, well, I hope to talk to you in May then. Let's do it. I'd love to. All right. Well, Brian Merchant, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? 
Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.